This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Covaris, Ranchford Eye Center, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and answers all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and welcome to our program today. Uh, A great, beautiful day. Um, Later on at 3.30 today, I will be on the sideline for the University of Connecticut playing Cincinnati at Rentschler Field. So if you get a chance, get on out there. It's a great, great situation. Uh, The parking lot, I'm sure, is already uh, jumping with games and grills and who has the best van decorated for the Yukon game. So it's great to be out there. Great situation to bring children. So if you get a chance, come on out. I'm looking forward to today's show because my guest is Dr. Keaton Balsara. Dr. Balsara is the chief of neurosurgery at the University of Connecticut. He's going to be joining us in this in the studio. Now you have to understand in medicine there is a hierarchy. I could say that because I'm not at the top of the hierarchy, okay? But there is a hierarchy among physicians in terms of specialties, and they respect, they demand, and deserve, I should say, although some demand it. But uh, neurosurgeons are at the top of that. They're kind of the fighter pilots of medicine. So it's always great. That's why I've really been looking forward to this show. I mean, surgeons, to cut into somebody, do some work and close it up, takes a certain person to do. To cut into somebody's skull, operate on the brain, and leave them better than they were before is a phenomenal feat. And that's why I have so much respect for neurosurgeons. So we're going to chat with Dr. Bulsara later on today. On September 29th in 1903, Dr. John Gibbon was born. Now, Dr. Gibbon, born in 1903, was the developer of the heart-lung machine and obviously used in open-heart surgery even to this day. He invented a machine that would take over for your heart and lungs so that somebody could manipulate the heart, fix it, and start it up again. That was in 1903. In 1927, Dr. Wilhelm Eindhoven died. Now, Dr. Eindhoven, and the two things are related. Dr. Eindhoven died. He was the pioneer in developing the EKG, the electrocardiogram. So it's interesting how in the early part of the 20th century, we really had a lot going on in the field of cardiology. And we remember both of those people today on September 29th. One of the things folks have been hearing in the news has been about Ted Turner. Ted Turner, for younger listeners who are not familiar, was an entrepreneur. Uh, He created CNN, and CNN being the first cable news network. That's what CNN was with 24-hour news, and it was groundbreaking. He was also a tremendous sportsman. Um, Although he is still alive, he is, I use the past tense because of his work in winning the America's Cup back in sailing. 
Um, he was recently diagnosed with, or at least became known that he has Lewy body dementia. Lewy body dementia affects about a million Americans, usually over the age of 50, often affects people later in life, much like uh, Ted Turner, who's age 79. And it affects not only your memory in terms of the dementia part, but your ability to move. Louis bodies were first really described in 1912 by Dr. Frederick Louis, and they were the hallmark of, and still are a hallmark pathologically, of Parkinson's disease. So it was interesting that although we knew that people with Parkinson's could become demented, we didn't realize that there was a dementia that came first in some folks and with a movement disorder and has the name of Lewy body dementia. So again, it brings a different, this is different from Alzheimer's disease. But again, a dementia, a lot of research going on in this field. And uh, I hope Ted Turner uh, brings that a little bit further to the forefront. In Connecticut Medicine this month, there was an article looking at level one trauma centers in Connecticut from 2007 to 2015. So over that eight-year period, 17,649 patients presented to level one trauma centers. Those are the highest level trauma center. When they looked at why those people presented to trauma centers, the number one reason were falls, falling, accidental falling. Motor vehicle accidents were number two. Motorcycle accidents were number three. 10% of all the patients who presented had traumatic brain injuries. What was interesting was that more than 50% of the motorcycle riders did not wear helmets. And that's where the largest number of traumatic brain injury was seen. It's also of note that 13% of that those 17,000 patients tested positive for some form of substance abuse. What it tells us is that in the state of Connecticut, we need to start targeting the reasons for people suffering these traumatic brain injuries, these severe injuries. So things like we need to target, again, elderly people falling is number one. Motorcycles need to become safer overall. And that means wearing a helmet. There's no question that that makes it safer for the rider. And we also have to be very careful about drug use and alcohol use when operating vehicles. So again, things we need to target. Uh, surprisingly, the elderly falls. We know that hundred something like 180,000 people die in this country from falls um, in the elderly population. So we really need to keep track of that. A quick reminder, 80,000 people died from the flu last winter. Something to keep in mind because that's the highest in the last four decades. Now, typically, about 12,000 to 15, to anywhere between 12,000 and 50,000 people die from the flu. But last year was an exceptionally high year. Um, and it peaked in early February and remained with us until March, that really virulent form of the flu. So it's something we have to keep in mind this year. Granted, the vaccine, again, the vaccine was not as effective as it had been in other years. That doesn't mean you don't get it. 
it's important to keep in mind that you need to, to talk to your doctor and find out when you should be getting the vaccine, how to get the vaccine, and get it. Okay, It's multivalent, so it will work on multiple forms of the flu. And specifically, they're targeting specific types that we think are going to be most prominent right now. The last article I wanted to discuss was one about antibiotics for appendicitis. In a Finnish study that came out this week in JAMA, it looked at the use of just antibiotics and not surgery for appendicitis. Appendix removal is the most common surgical procedure performed in the world. Based on this study, about two-thirds of people may not need surgery. So it's not for the people who are about to rupture their appendix. So with new imaging studies, particularly the CT scan, you can tell if someone is in danger of rupturing their appendix. They did a previous study in pediatrics and showed that it was effective. So they looked at this large population in Finland and then went back to them five years later to find out if those people who were treated with antibiotics needed the surgery anyhow, and they did not. So it's important to know, again, medicine is starting to shift from the standpoint of something we thought was commonplace, a surgical procedure to remove the appendix may be very treatable with antibiotics and saving someone a surgical procedure. With that, we're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Keetan Bolsara. Dr. Bolsara is the chief of neurosurgery at the University of Connecticut. I'm going to give you the phone numbers now, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Those are the tunes of Tony Bennett, who will be at the Mohegan Sun next week. And always a great show at the Mohegan Sun. So if you get a chance, get on over there, get some tickets uh, to hear Tony Bennett and enjoy the good life at the Mohegan Sun, uh, where there are plenty of restaurants, gaming, and other things to enjoy. My guest today is Dr. Keetan Bolsara. Dr. Bolsara is the Chief of Neurosurgery at the University of Connecticut. Um, I, I just can't go through all of his accolades. He has done multiple fellowships in skull-based neurosurgery, cerebrovascular neurosurgery, endovascular neurosurgery. Uh, and as I mentioned, um, he is among the physicians I most respect uh, because of their ability and training. Keetan, welcome to the show. Tony, thanks a lot. It's uh, Thank you for the opportunity for being here today. Well, we're going to go off topic because I, I want to get right into neurosurgery, but uh, in chatting with you before the show, can you tell a little bit, tell people how you got here? I mean, really, because I think the story is especially relevant in these political times, and I think it'll become relevant to anybody listening. Um, because you were born in India, Tony. I was I was born in India, and, and uh, in many ways, when I when I think about it, my my journey to where where I am in neurosurgery today is uh, is is what I would consider um, is like it's been an it's been a dream for me, sort of the American dream. I, I was born in India, 
And uh, at a very young age, at six months, um, we moved to Central Africa in Zambia. And uh, we moved there because of sort of the, the job opportunities uh, for my dad, uh, given that we came from a caste that had limited job opportunities in India. Uh, Zambia had just gotten its independence from the British. And when the British left, they had left everything they had intact, but they really didn't teach the natives how to run anything. So we're desperate for foreigners to come in. And that, that we were part of the wave of migration uh, to Zambia. And, you know, when, when you think about it, uh, Zambia, uh, living close to the equator in Africa, it, it's, it's almost like a dreamland, right? I mean, it's beautiful. But within this, within this environment, uh, one day in Uganda, Idi Amin wakes up and uh, feels like uh, all the foreigners are, are bad and needs to get rid of all of the foreigners and uh, orders like mandatory evacuations in Uganda. And my father was really afraid that that was going to spread to Zambia also. And he started to look for ways for us to potentially get out of uh, Africa. And, um, you know, one day we were having a conversation at the dinner table. My father said, uh, you know, uh, Ronald Reagan won the election. Jimmy Carter, um, uh, uh, he's going to replace Jimmy Carter as uh, the president. And fundamentally, that, that event changed our lives because uh, Ronald Reagan led in the greatest number of immigrants to the United States. And with a basic tenant, find a job nobody else really wants to do. Do it for about a year and a half and you'll get a green card. And um, that's how we ended up in the United States, uh, working at convenience stores, uh, 7-Elevens, and motels, uh, and, uh, and then, uh, uh, I mean, all, getting the opportunity to go into neurosurgery. So it's truly been a, a tremendous journey. And I wasn't planning on talking about no. that, but thank you for, the, thank you for uh, sharing that. No, and, and, and you now have a family here. I, I do. I, I have um, uh, my, my two lovely kids, Akshay and Karishma. Uh, my, my parents are in New Jersey, my wife, Nita. And uh, I mean, it's, um, it's, uh, Connecticut's been a fantastic home for us. Uh, let's talk about your education. You went to medical school at Duke? I, I, went, to, I went to medical school at, uh, at Duke. Um, um, did, uh, I went to Davidson College uh, originally. Davidson's probably better known because uh, Steph Curry graduated uh, <laughs> Or, or fin- uh, went to Davidson College also, but uh, went to Davidson College undergraduate and then went on to, to Duke Medical School and uh, decided to stay on there for, for residency, which uh, it's a seven-year residency program. Uh, did uh, three fellowships um, uh, during, uh, either during the course or right after my, uh, my neurosurgery uh, residency. And... Um, and then uh, have been involved in uh, sur- uh, in uh, surgery of blood vessels, uh, surgery of brain tumors, and surgery of the spine. Though now I'm, I'm focusing more on uh, blood vessel uh, disorders of the spine and tumors of the spine. And leading a very growing department. You know, uh, neurosurgery uh, within the context of uh, Yukon Health uh, has seen unprecedented growth over the last uh, year. And it's been a very, very exciting time. And, uh, you know, I think one important thing to mention is that anytime you want to grow something and you want it to have a meaningful impact in terms of all the clinicians and the patients, it has to be done in a multidisciplinary fashion. And so uh, I'm really fortunate to be in an environment where we have... uh, the administration, the the faculty, the staff, all of whom are all very committed to to excellence in patient care, patient centered care, and uh, growing to continue to meet uh, the challenges um, that our patients uh, face. Keaton, the field of neurosurgery has certainly changed a lot. I mean, I guess I still remember when we first started using CT scanning. Okay, but. Can you talk a little bit about the evolution of neurosurgery in terms of 
techniques, equipment, uh, you know, the OR is a very different place right now for neurosurgery and has changed even in the last 10 years. Well, you're absolutely right, Tony. And, and you know, every time I think about neurosurgery and I think of all of the advances that are have been made and are in the process of being made, I'm simply amazed by the fact that organized neurosurgery, neurosurgery uh, as we know it today in an organized fashion, is a profession that's less than 100 years old. And uh, what, what's uh, really dramatic about that is within the last 100 years, or a little bit over 100 years, neurosurgery has evolved from a, uh, from a place where patients who had intracranial or brain lesions, or oftentimes even spinal cord lesions, the, the mortality and morbidity associated with those operations was almost 100%. And in a very short time span and just a little bit over 100 years, we've now reached uh, reached the point that we can offer excellent outcomes for this. And this has been an evolution. It's been an evolution in uh, evolution led by people who've truly believed that the status quo in the management of patients with central nervous system lesions has never been good enough. And this has driven neurosurgery from going to a specialty that had such high morbidity mortality to pro progressing, to better understanding the anatomy, to incorporating all of the technological advancements that are being made elsewhere to the point that we can now um, offer our patients a much, much better outlook. But, but the status quo still isn't good enough. It still isn't good enough. And we have to strive every day, strive continuously in a multidisciplinary fashion to bring in everything that we have so that every patient's tomorrow is going to be better than, uh, than their today. And uh, this is incorporated util utilizing state-of-the-art technology. So, for example, at UConn Health, we have one of the few hybrid biplane operating rooms uh, on the East Coast uh, in the country. And it, it, it takes us to a whole nother level. We, we have novel sort of partnerships, such as uh, with Jackson Labs. We have the genomic, uh, genomic uh, sequencing initiative, where every single patient that has a tumor that we feel is going to need additional or creative sort of treatment options, we send it for genomic sequencing. And we work with experts at Jackson, Jackson Labs and at the University of Connecticut to, to come up with better treatment paradigms for them. The much-abused Jackson Labs. If you listen to politicians, you would think nothing is going on there, and it's just a black hole that we threw money at, uh, which is certainly not the case. Um, we're going to take a short break, and I want to get back because I have no idea what a hybrid biplane operating room is, and I really want to learn about that, especially in how we apply it to brain tumors because that's probably the one topic that I find overwhelming, and, and I want to get your opinion of that. The phone number's here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today we're chatting with Dr. Kethan Bolsara. Dr. Bolsara is the Chief of Neurosurgery at the University of Connecticut. And um, we've got some questions lined up, but before we get to the questions, Kethan, I need to know what is a biplanar operating room? Uh, a biplanar uh, operating room uh, is uh, also referred to as a hybrid uh, operating room, uh, and uh, so what uh, what this is is a is a condition in which uh, you have 
two x-ray arms, two large x-ray arms. Um, traditionally, you just have one x-ray arm, but in, our, in this unique biplane unit, we have uh, two, two x-ray arms uh, uh, in a room that allows us to do open surgery. And so having this increased uh, x-ray capability within the operating room allows us to treat uh, the conditions we commonly treat um, with increased accuracy and uh, precision, but it also allows to us to treat uh, novel uh, uh, to treat things in a more novel sort of fashion to optimize patient outcomes. So, all right, let's let's grab some questions here. We have Gene uh, on the line from Harrington. Um, something about a stroke and options for brain surgery. Gene, you're on. Good morning. Thank you. I, I listen with fascination every week to your guests. Thank I, you. I think it's great. Thank you for taking my call. And uh, I am a victim of a stroke, and, and uh, there's a technical name of the stroke I had. I can't think of it right offhand, but it's a brain bleed. Okay. You know, where, where now I have a blockage, and it affected my left side. And uh, do you do anything with something like this? Is there any hope for me? Well, when you say it affected your left side, that means your left arm and leg are weak? Uh, well, yeah, I can move my left arm, but I can't function with it. And uh, actually, I spent nine months in a nursing home. Okay. And uh, I wear a brace on my left leg, and they actually got me so that I can walk a little bit. I can go up and down stairs, and I can walk with a walker, but I spent okay. most of my life in a wheelchair. Did they say uh, you had an aneurysm? Did they use a word like that? They did not They did not use that word. They called it something else, but that's basically what it was. Okay, okay. All right, I'm going to hang up on you. We're going to talk about it a little bit. Thanks for the call, and thanks for listening, Gene. Certainly. What do you think? Well, Captain? Gene, th th thanks a lot for that question, and um, I, I wish you uh, all continued uh, success as you uh, as you continue to recover. When when you think of stroke, you think of uh, two general categories of stroke. You think of hemorrhagic stroke, and you think of ischemic stroke. And uh, Gene, what you uh, what you describe sounds like uh, you had a hemorrhagic stroke, which is a, a bleed in, in the brain. And when you think of a bleed in the brain, the most common etiology of that is. Uh, uh, if it's not trauma, then it's uh, a vascular lesion, such as an aneurysm or an arteriovenous malformation. And uh, you know that the brain has amazing capabilities to sort of try and rewire itself, try to heal itself. And, and I think what you're demonstrating is that with your, with your continued efforts, you're, you're on the progress to, uh, to continue utilizing this. In, in terms of surgery for, for this, it's, it's very difficult to comment on that without completely understanding uh, uh, what you had and uh, sort of uh, this, uh, what the images look like. But um, there is surgery for brain hemorrhages, uh, but this is more in the acute period where you're trying to save somebody's life, trying to alleviate the pressure in the brain. And um, so, again, I think it would take a, more of an understanding of exactly what you had but um, right now, there's no definitive surgery uh, for, um, f to enhance recovery. Uh, interesting, uh, because obviously you want to identify the source of the bleeding, and that's the crucial part of it. Uh, it's a relatively small percentage of, of strokes that are hemorrhagic. Very, uh, you're absolutely right. I, I, I mean, uh, 
it, when when you look at the general categories of stroke, ischemic and hemorrhagic, the vast majority are ischemic strokes. And uh, ischemic strokes are where a blood vessel is occluded and the brain becomes starved of oxygen and that brain tissue dies. And ischemic stroke has undergone a dramatic revolution in terms of our paradigm for treating this. So if a patient gets to uh, at UConn, we're uh, a gold uh, medalist, uh, primary stroke center certified uh, uh, center. Uh, if a patient uh, gets to the hospital within uh, four and a half hours, uh, then they can get IVTPA. You can extend this timeline. Uh, you can ex- you can treat them now even further with mechanical thrombectomy, which uh, recent studies have shown can be utilized for up to 24 hours if you have advanced imaging that shows that there's brain still at risk of uh, dying. Great. It's, it's amazing how much that's changed. We're going to take another call. We have Mary from Massachusetts about a daughter who had brain surgery. Mary, thanks for calling. Thank you very, very much. Um, my daughter is a 42-year-old nurse um, in Boston last September. Uh, first of all, 2008, she, they went in and they um, unclogged one of the ventricles, and that was successful for her hydrocephalus. And they last year determined that a shunt would probably help her condition and they put it in on a Friday and the doctor said she could go home Monday, no, Saturday, and the nurse on the floor said that they didn't feel she was ready to go home, she was vomiting, Uh, physical therapy said she was very unsteady on her feet. Um, They sent her home Monday with um, a, a large pile of vomit bowls. Um, She was sick and nauseous until I found her lying beside her bed on October 3rd. She was rushed to Bay State in Springfield, and they removed um, her skull, and they removed the shunt. And because they felt that the shunt had caused the bleed. So my question is, um, it's been a year. Um, they sent her to rehab. She was eight, she came home after Thanksgiving. Um, she is she had no function at all when she came home. Then um, she started physical therapy immediately, and she is now able to dress herself and toilet herself and and walk. She is petrified of having any more surgery. Is there a chance that they would do they would put in another shunt to eliminate or help her with her Hydrocephalus. Uh, Mary, I had a quick question. Why did she have the original hydrocephalus in 2008? Was it from an obstruction, did they say? They felt it was something that she had had all of her life. Um, and that's when, in 2008, they um, clogged, um, oh, I, I yeah. murdered the word, they yeah. cleaned the um, ventricle. Was she pres- did, Was she having headaches at that time? Yes, she has always okay. had headaches. Okay, okay. Keith, that's interesting. At this point in time, is this something, because uh, it sounds like patient had an intracerebral hemorrhage after shunt placement is what Correct. I'm getting from this. And the question becomes now, do you go back and put another shunt in? Yeah. It's hard, and it's hard. Believe me, yeah. Mary, we're kind of guessing at this because we don't have scans and other data, but um, I think it's a, it's a reasonable hypothetical from that standpoint. Yeah. Tony, you know uh, um, that, that's a tough question to answer. And, and Mary, um, you know it, um, what I what I'm always sort of amazed with is, uh, and uh, always reminded of is, 
when a when a patient's uh, when a patient is going through uh, through an event that affects more than just the patient, it affects the entire family. And and I think your daughter is very lucky that uh, she has you. That's uh, so supportive. And in terms of answering your question as to whether she would benefit from another shunt or, no, or not, you know, it, that's really difficult to answer without looking at any images or sort of understanding uh, what's been happening in, in terms of her uh, uh, cerebrospinal fluid dynamics. And uh, certainly, uh, if you ever want, if you ever want uh, us to review the films uh, we'd, or uh, talk to, uh, to you and your daughter, we'd be more than happy to through uh, through our team at uh, UConn Health. And the number is 860-679-8080. Because I understand... Oh, wait just a second. I can't do it that fast. 860... 679 8080. 8080. 8080. Yeah. 679 8080. Doctor, I would love that. She is just a precious, precious in individual. Great. And she couldn't be any sweeter. Thanks um, for calling in, Mary. We appreciate it. And how do you spell your last name? Uh, Bulsara. B U L S A R A. All right. I will contact you. Okay. Thank All you. Right. Thanks, Mary. All right. Thank you. Take care. Hope we could help. Uh, Interesting, because she brought up the topic of shunts, and I know that you guys do shunts um, at the hospital. Can you talk a little bit about shunts, why they're used? Um, because we're seeing them increasingly even in adults now. Yeah. You know, the brain uh, the brain produces a certain amount of cerebrospinal fluid. Um, uh, the spinal fluid uh, has functions all the way ranging from uh, uh, helping provide nutrition to, uh, to cleansing uh, various areas of, uh, of the brain. And uh, sometimes uh, the, the brain makes too much spinal fluid, or sometimes the brain, uh, the, the, the drainage pathways of the spinal fluid get, up, get obstructed, but the brain doesn't realize that it's obstructed, so it continues making that. And what the, the situation we have with uh, the skull, though, is there's only a finite amount of stuff that can be in there. There's three things. There's blood. There's spinal fluid and there's a brain itself. And so if there's too much spinal fluid in the brain, it puts too much pressure um, uh, within the skull and and uh, parts of your brain start to shut down if it gets to an extreme form. So what shunts are designed to do is to take that fluid and bypass uh, the natural drainage pathways within the brain itself and uh, and uh, divert it uh, uh, to various areas such as like uh, such as the abdomen. And um, uh, there, there are many, many, many reasons for having for needing shunts and uh, brain tumors and a- ruptured aneurysms or vascular malformations could also contribute to a patient needing shunts. So, shunts have been around a very long time, particularly in children who had hydrocephalus. I mean, they must date back to the fifties. Am I correct? Uh, or? You know, you're 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 right in that estimate. Uh, yeah. They they backed uh, they date back for quite some time, and they they you know they they do have a tendency to become obstructed. Yeah, here's my and, frustration. Uh, Let me give yeah. you the neurologist's frustration with shunts are that you have a patient with a shunt that needs a revision after it's clogged, the valves clogged. Every neurosurgeon uses a different system, and they won't touch the other system. So it, you have to now. Fine. So someone who's moved here from another part of the country where they had the shunt, and then you can't find anyone who actually uses that system. You call the company. I've had this problem. Call the company. 
and they don't have anybody in the Northeast who uses their system. So I, it's frustrating. Is there a way of getting around that? Oh, come on, Tony. Give us a little bit more credit in terms of flexibility. I, I think <laughs> I, I think, I think the situation you probably had uh, maybe in isolated. It was at your former employer, okay? <laughs> Yale University, okay? They only use one system. You know, I think there's I think there's there's the shunt systems are designed so that there's uh, enough sort of uh, overlap in terms of um, the systems uh, such that um, and there's enough sort of uh, backup in terms from the industry and things to that extent that I think uh, hopefully the situation you described is a, is a really rare situation. Oh, I'm just giving them your phone number anyhow. Okay. All right. Uh, you're listening to Healthy Rounds. We're going to be back with my guest today, Dr. Keith Bulsara, um, who is the chief of neurosurgery at the University of Connecticut. There are so many topics I want to get into with him, so we're going to try and squeeze them in. Also, we want to talk a little bit about the future of neurosurgery. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds for our last segment with Dr. Kevin Bolsara. Dr. Bolsara is the Chief of Neurosurgery at the University of Connecticut. Kevin, I, I guess I have a question for you, and that is, are you ever overwhelmed? I mean, in the sense that the goal ahead is just too overwhelming, because I find that um, often with brain tumors. If there's any topic that I've learned uh, enough about in my 32 years of practice, it's it's brain tumors, particularly very aggressive glioblastoma multiforme, uh, in the sense that we haven't made a lot of progress in their treatment. Um, obviously, there's surgical options still recommended, but with terrible outcomes. Is there a is there a field of neurosurgery where you're kind of overwhelmed by? You you know I um, uh, you know sometimes. Um there's a lot of things going on, and and uh, I, I think if you lose, um, if you uh, you know, the focus has always been uh, for me and many of my colleagues uh, who participate uh, in taking care of the of uh, very critically ill or very complex tumors and vascular lesions of the brain and spinal cord. Our focus has always been on the fact that the status quo just isn't good enough. And that's been the status quo that early on when neurosurgery started a little bit over 100 years ago, that was sort of the focus, which is the status quo isn't good enough. And, and I, I think, um, I, I mean, um, neurosurgery, I look at it as a team effort. And uh, in the context of a team effort, uh, it's not overwhelming when you consider the fact that, you know, you're, you're forming a team. Every patient that we treat, we form a team with the patient, we form a team with the patient's family because they're ultimately involved in the healing process, and they too are adapting to a lot of uh, a lot of things. So I think, in in this uh, in this concept of a team, I, I think we can really challenge the status quo, and all strive uh, for improvement for our patients. What are we going to hear about new in the field of neurosurgery? I mean, in, in all these different fields, we're hearing about monoclonal antibodies. We're hearing about lasers. Everybody's got a laser now. Um, but in neurosurgery, it, it, it's been different. Um, what's what's the future looking like for neurosurgery? Yeah, you know, I um, I am extremely excited uh, again with uh, with the concept that the status quo continues to need to improve. I'm extremely excited about the future of neurosurgery. I think 
in in realms such as uh, brain tumors and vascular lesions, uh, we're getting to the point that we can better understand these lesions. Um, uh, for example, I mentioned our our, our um, collaboration with Jackson Labs for the genomic uh, sequencing for our tumor patients. Uh, you know, we, we had this uh, scenario where uh, when, a, when a person has an infection, we identify what the infection is, and we treat that infection with a specific antibiotic targeted to that infection. Well, for brain tumors and for many other types of tumors, what, what we've been doing for a very, very long time, because that's all we had available, is we generally categorized uh, the lesion and said, this is how we treat it, because this is what we think works. But now, with collaborations uh, such as we have with Jackson Labs, we're in a situation where we can say, "Listen, this is what the this is what the tumor looks like. These are the mutations that the tumor has. These drugs will will may be more effective against this tumor. So we can really select the type of treatment that we give to our patients. And I, I believe ultimately this will result in improved outcomes. But this doesn't happen just in isolation in terms of the, the scientific front. It also incorporates all of the technological advancements that are happening. Introduction of uh, very uh, high-level complex microscopes, such uh, we were one we were the first in the country to... Uh, to to acquire this uh, novel microscope that gives us amazing um, resolution and visualization that was never never possible uh, possible before the hybrid biplane operating room. So clearly, the future of neurosurgery is very exciting as we continue to combine the scientific advances with the technological advances that are occurring around us. Um, uh, and uh, I, I think ultimately all of this will translate into improved patient outcomes. Uh, you talked a little bit about building a team, uh, which I agree with you, and I understand you may soon get a residency program in neurosurgery. As I think of it, I, I guess there's only one at Yale right now in the state of Connecticut uh, residency program for neurosurgery. Um, that's That's got to be a big step in building a team. Yeah, you, you know, um, we uh, we're very excited about this uh, in a in a joint collaborative fashion with um, uh, with uh, my colleagues uh, around the area. We have uh, we have put in an application for a residency program because I think as what's important is that we train the next generation of neurosurgeons to contribute to changing the status quo. And uh, I feel that uh, the group that we've assembled uh, does it so well that uh, this is something that we would like to, to pass on and uh, make sure that this continues. So we don't have uh, a residency program yet, but uh, we are well uh, on the way in terms of our application in a collaborative fashion. Uh, it's been great chatting with you. Uh, we'll have to get you back because there are so many topics on my list that we did not get to. But, um, you know, the most important thing we try to do is help our listeners, and hopefully we've helped some people today. Kevin, thank you for spending time with us today and more importantly, for everything you do for our patients at the University of Connecticut. Tony, thanks a lot. Thank you for the opportunity, and uh, thank you for the questions. Uh, many thanks to our studio producer. Mike Olko has been on the board. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next week on Healthy Rounds, we have no idea if we're going to be here or not because we're waiting to find out if we're going to get bumped by football. But we will be back. And I have a long list of guests we want to get on the show to bring more information to you folks. Next up on WTIC is Garden Talk with Len. Please remember to help save lives by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Do that today by going to registerme.org. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. 
This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Covaris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.